Okay, you guys can open up to Matthew chapter 11. We're going to be in uh, verses 20 through 30. Jesus and his disciples have been uh, going about the region proclaiming this message that the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, last week or two weeks ago now, uh, we, we saw this story about John the Baptist who's been sitting in prison. Um, again, he was the one that was tasked with announcing Jesus as the Savior, and, then, and now he's in prison, and he's beginning to wonder what's going on, uh, doubting, and, and um, he's concerned. So he sends out some of his disciples to do a little reconnaissance and to ask Jesus some questions to find out maybe what's going on and, and to see if, um, if Jesus really is the promised Messiah. And so as a way to comfort John and provide the proof he needs, this is what Jesus told his disciples to go back and tell him. And we read it in verse 5, where it says, The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. So in other words, Jesus says, go back and tell them I'm the Messiah, <laughs> okay? Because Jesus was doing things that only God could do, and he was doing them on a regular basis. It's one thing to claim to be the Messiah. It's another thing to prove it by, by the things that you do. And the cool thing is that all of these works of Jesus, the things that he did, they still speak to us today. They still validate who he is. The biggest one, of course, being the resurrection. When you look around at the transformed lives of the, of the people, even in this room, we know Jesus is alive. We know that he's, he's really who he said he was. So in verse 20, Jesus is going to call out though, those, those areas, those people in those regions who witnessed all of these things that he did. They witnessed undeniable miracles, undeniable proofs that he was who he says he is, and they still refuse to believe. So in verse 11, or sorry, chapter 11, verse 20, it says, then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to the heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained till this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest." Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's a fairly long section. In case you didn't notice, there are a ton of fairly difficult theological implications in this passage. So if you, if you, were, if you weren't ready for, for that today here, I almost, I did actually title it, this, this, I called it the Sour Patch Sermon, because it starts out a little sour, and then hopefully by the end, when we get to the end, it'll, it'll, it'll become sweet. Jesus starts out by, by denouncing these cities where most of his mighty works had been done. Um, you know, not only did Jesus perform the miracles that we read about here in, in Scripture, but it, according to John's gospel in, verse, in chapter 21, he says that if all of the miracles Jesus did 
we're, we're trying to, you know, if you tried to put them in the books, there wouldn't be enough libraries, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to put them in. So he did way more than what we get to read about, but most of what he did, he did in this region. It's kind of like the triangle area of Galilee where these cities existed. Um, Capernaum especially, he spent more time there doing miracles than anywhere other than maybe Jerusalem. So, so these guys witnessed the bulk of his miracles. In other words, they had front row seats to the greatest things that have ever happened in the world. They got to see things nobody else got to see. And you would expect that that would mean that they would be first in line. Like, okay, who wants to believe in Jesus? And they'd be like, where do we sign? Where do I, you know, how do I, how do, I do this? I, but they didn't do that. All of this seemed to be completely lost on them. Instead, they ignored him or rejected him as though none of it really mattered. And so Jesus makes this kind of startling statement, perhaps even a harsh statement about them. He says it will be more bearable for these other well-known cities than it will be for them on the day of judgment. And the cities he mentions are Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom. And, and you, you know, this would not have been lost on, on the Jewish people that heard what he just said. Uh, this would have been a complete slap in their face because they, they knew who these cities were. They knew the people and what they were known for. They, they understood what Jesus was saying. Can you imagine how offensive it would be for a Jewish person to hear, you know who's going to have an easier time on the day of judgment than you? Sodom and Gomorrah. Like, wow, that's, you know, we, we, when we want to try to get to the, the height of something evil, we compare things to Hitler today. You know, that's, that's our bar for, you know, you know, that's like, well, for them, it was Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's still something that gets used today. Um, but these were, these were like, you know, this was a shots fired situation. These were fighting words. He basically takes the worst of the worst that they know about and says, if they would have seen what you've seen, they would have repented. So there's a clear expectation from Jesus that each of these cities should repent and turn to him in belief, and then there's a clear lack of repentance from all of them. So this begs the question, what is repentance? Why is it so important? Repentance is a change of heart that results in a change of behavior. So if you can imagine you're standing between maybe a sin that you love and, and God over here, and, and you don't want to leave that sin, but then you, you know repentance would mean I'm, I'm turning from that sin and I'm turning to God. So it's a a 180. And I like to take the opportunity to make sure you know it's a 180 and not a 360 because I hear people say, man, I did a 360 once in my life. It's like, well, that's, that means, anyway, <laughs> just, just keep 180 in your mind. It's not as impressive as a 360 when it comes to sin. But, but basically, it, it just means that you're forsaking one thing and embracing the other. Now, even though what Jesus says to them may seem harsh, it's extremely kind and extremely gracious because he's informing them and warning them about what they're doing wrong. If you're doing something that you don't know is wrong, you can't repent from it. And so I immediately thought about, do you remember the story of Jonah and the Ninevites, the book of, you know, or the book of Jonah when he talks about the Ninevites? These were people that it, the Bible says they didn't know their right hand from their left hand. And that was a way of saying they didn't know that what they were doing was wrong. And so God sends a prophet, Jonah, to them, to inform them that what they're doing is displeasing to God, and if they don't turn from their sin and turn to God, they'll be destroyed. Can you imagine being an Old Testament prophet? Wouldn't that be a, that'd be a fun job, right? Um, the cool thing is Nineveh believed God. From the greatest to the least, they repented in sackcloth and ashes. That was a way to show that you were sorry for your sin. You would, you would you know, put this stuff on. They repented from their evil deeds, and God was merciful to them, right? The, his kindness led them to repentance. Now, the, the kind of ironic thing about this is Jonah, that's the reason Jonah didn't want to go. He knew this about God, and that's why he fled in the first place. If you know the story, it's, you know, this is what we read in, in chapter 4 and verse 2. 
It says, Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. It's like saying, see, I knew it. I knew this was going to happen. And that's why I didn't want to go. It's, it's kind of funny. It's like, Jonah, you're saying that out loud. We can, we can hear what you're saying. It, you know, that's messed up, buddy. But I bring this up for two reasons. One, I want to illustrate how much the Jewish people hated these other nations. They, they considered them evil Gentile nations. Um, so for Jesus to compare them to them was a, was a big deal. And two, just to point out that God hasn't changed. You know, I, I, there's this idea that the God of the Old Testament was kind of grumpy and mean, and now in the New Testament, he's nice and, and loving. And that's not, that's not the case. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we, we see the fact that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, you know, full of steadfast love, all of these things then, and they're still true today. He's that way. This is what our God is like. He's not a bloodthirsty tyrant, who, you know, and that's what some people would have you believe. And, and I just, the, to know that God has always been patient with sinners. One of God's, one of my favorite attributes of God is his long suffering, because I know who I am and I know what I'm like. And that God has been long suffering with me is, is such a, an amazing thing. Now, the problem, of course, is most people don't want to turn from their sin. Even when they find out what it is and, and they're, they're made aware of it, they don't want to turn because they, they, they love it. They love what they're doing and they don't want to, to give it up. And this is exactly what we're seeing with these cities that Jesus is denouncing. They're very comfortable with their lives. They like the way things are going and they don't want anyone or anything to get in the way of that. It's funny because later uh, Jesus mentions Nineveh again in chapter 12 when it says that one day the men of Nineveh will rise up against Jerusalem and condemn them too. So you get the idea that even, even the Ninevites are going to go, we had a guy who didn't even like us, who hated us come and, and preach to us and we repented. You had the son of God who loves you in your midst and you ignored him. They're going to be blown away by that. So when you're confronted with the truth of your actions and you find out that what you're doing is wrong, God expects repentance turning away from what's wrong and turning to God to get right. So change of action results in a change of course. If a person chooses not to repent or not to turn away from those things, this is where the word woe comes in that Jesus brings up here. Um, you know, it's not a word we use a lot, uh, but woe to you is a warning of coming judgment. Um, again, I would say these are a kindness of God because they give a the people a chance to repent uh, before judgment comes. But, it, but it's interesting what God uses to draw people to himself. I'm, uh, I'm one of the guys that needed to hear woe. Woe to you, Brent. Um, some people are drawn by his love. So when somebody thinks that they're fine the way they are and that they really don't have any need to change, and then God comes in and says, hey, my judgment's coming your way if you don't change, this is where the law of God comes in handy. We can preach the law of God to people like this and let them know that, hey, you actually don't measure up as well as you think you do. And then there's other people that already know that. They know that they don't measure up. They know that they're sinners. They know that they're desperate. And this is where the grace of God, God's love comes in to win them over. Both of those things are important messages and the scriptures teach them both. But the minute I found out that I was deserving God's judgment and that I wasn't as good as I thought I was, I, w I wanted to find out as quickly as I could, what must I do to be saved? Where do I have to go? What do I have to do? And, and so that's kind of the... Um, the big idea of the passage, but 
one of the main things we want to see in this and make sure you understand is that human responsibility or that, that man is responsible is something that we see clearly in this. It's a truth that's taught in God's word. So no matter, you know, there's no real excuse. It means that there's no reason whatsoever for people not to repent and believe. The people that saw these miracles should have done that. Romans 1 makes it clear by telling us that what can be known about God is plain. It can be plainly seen by observing what has been made or, or creation. And, and I, I, this is a, it's kind of hard to live in this area and look around at all the stuff that we get to look at and not, not realize there's a God. I love how Isaac Newton put it one time. He said, um, in the absence of any other proof, the thumb alone would convince me of God's existence. <laughs> it's kind of neat. And if you think about who Isaac Newton was, the guy was brilliant. I just imagine him just staring at his thumb going, yeah, God's real. <laughs> you know? There, there, there's, it's obvious that we have an intelligent designer. There's not really, it's not hidden from us. In fact, I would say creation screams from the top of its lungs that God is real, that he exists. There's no reason not to get this. And in fact, we read that this morning when we started the service. Psalm, Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims his handiwork. Day to day, they pour out speech and night to night, they reveal knowledge, right? Their voice goes out through all the earth. There's no reason that people shouldn't hear this. But the problem is they're like the kids that don't want to hear something. You remember when you were a kid and you didn't want to hear something, you put your hands over your ears and go, nah, nah, nah. this is what people are doing because they don't want to deal with God, a God who's personal and a God that they have to answer to. But the point here is that for you not to hear is ridiculous because we have creation, we have all that, but for these guys, they had Jesus like walking around with a boombox on, you know, as loud as it could be, it turned up to 11. God is real, he's in your midst and they were still ignoring it. No amount of evidence is enough. Do you remember the story of Lazarus and the rich man? When Jesus said, you know, the rich man said, hey, would you do me a, please go back and tell my family, please go back and let my brothers know. And Jesus, what did he say? He said, you know what, even if somebody were to come back from the dead, they won't believe. Even that kind of evidence won't convince them. And that's because of what we read. Um, there's a passage we, we read in the, the Psalms, and it's repeated for us in Romans in the New Testament. And it's Psalm 14. And this is one of the saddest verses. Uh, when I read it, it just, it breaks my heart um, and, because I know it's about me, <laughs> you know. It says, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And it's just heartbreaking to think that the God who loves us and made us looks down to see, hey, who wants me? And we just go, nah, and we turn aside. That's, that's what we're like, according to the scriptures. God graciously reveals himself to his creation, and we turn away. This means that God is completely just to judge and condemn us all. And I know this is a hard truth, but this biblical truth. So we refuse to see God, but in his incredible mercy, he opens some eyes to see him anyway. And that brings us to the second big thing we see in this passage, which is found in verse 25. And it looks like it contradicts human responsibility, but we're seeing the sovereignty of God talked about. So Jesus has been pronouncing these woes of judgment on these cities, and then he kind of stops for a second and, and just has a, a conversation with God. It's kind of it's weird how this works, but he's basically thanking God for the way he works and the, and the way he does things. So in verse 25, it says, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. 
All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So Jesus refers to the, the Father first as Lord of heaven and earth, and this is a pronouncement of, of authority over everything and everyone. And then he thanks God for his sovereignty in all things, including those who get to see and those who remain blinded. Jesus trusts the Father with these things, and he trusts that the Father is gracious in these things. And if Jesus can do this, we should follow his example, even though we may not understand it, and do the same thing. God is gracious. So, so here's, the, here's the hard thing. Here. The Bible consistently teaches that man is responsible and without excuse for what they do with God, and the Bible consistently teaches that God sovereignly acts according to his gracious will. My pea brain can't figure that out, I'll be honest. I don't, I don't know how those two things work together, but they do. And, and this is the problem we run into, and I see this happen so many times. We read something like this that is just, it says what it says. And then we say, you know what, I'm not comfortable with that. So you start kind of trying to dance around it and say, well, I think it means something else. Maybe it means this, maybe it means that. You know, you might not be comfortable with some of the things that the Bible says, but, but resting in this and trusting him is what he would have us do. Here's what I know to be true. The people in these cities that Jesus is denouncing did exactly what they wanted to do. Okay? And God is right to hold them accountable for it. That's true. And God is doing exactly what he wants to when he reveals Jesus to some of them. You know, we, we, we call it choosing or electing or predestination, whatever you want to call it. God is perfectly just in doing what he does. And Dan Doriani in his commentary kind of had a helpful illustration and I thought it was good. First, he says this, God relates to a world of sinners to whom he owes nothing except judgment. When he conceals his truth, it's not as though he erases a trail from honest hikers who hope to climb God's mountain. I thought that was good. All right. So it's not like there's all these people that are trying to climb the hill of God and they're looking for the path and God's like putting leaves on the path so they can't find it. They're not looking. They're not trying to find the path. So he goes on to say that we shouldn't marvel that Jesus hides his truth from some, but that he reveals it so clearly to so many. And this is the part that baffles me. Uh, you know, the bottom line is this, though. God is kind to a world of sinners to whom he owes nothing but judgment. So I, I know this is heavy, but bear with me. If God owes revelation and doesn't give it, he's not just. But if God doesn't owe revelation and he gives it anyway, he's incredibly just and merciful, gracious even. So it's possible your head's spinning a little bit right now because this is heavy stuff. But the good news is it's not heavy or hard for God. And I take great comfort in this. One of the things we see in this passage, it's implicit in it, is that God is omniscient. And that just means he knows everything. So he's able to, to figure this stuff out, even though we can't, in a way that is right and fair and good. Um, this is why he can say things in this passage like, hey, if this would have happened over here, they would have repented. <laughs> you remember? It's like, that's, how do you know that stuff? Well, he knows. Now, there's also an implication that he could have made those things happen over there, but he didn't. But he knows these things. I can't think, you know, again, I try to think about this stuff and it starts to blow. I think I can create scenarios and imagine things that are going to happen, but I'm never right. I mean, I can do it all day long and be like, oh man, if I do this, these five things will happen and then this will be said. That never works out. It's not that way with God. He knows every possible contingent in human history and what every possible outcome would be. It's like, how does that, how does he know? He just does. 
This means we're dealing with somebody that we can't fully comprehend or understand. It's above our pay grade. And at some point, you just have to say, this is God's realm, and I'm going to leave it in God's realm, and I'm going to trust him. I don't know what else to do. He knows infinitely more than we do, and he chooses to reveal, and he chooses to conceal, and, and he doesn't let us in on that meeting. You know, he doesn't say, hey, guys, come into the conference room. I want to talk to you about what I'm going to do. He just, I wish he did sometimes, but he didn't call me and say, hey, how do you feel about this, Brent? He just does what he does. And, and the other thing is we don't, he doesn't let us in his timetable. So we don't know that he could be concealing something now that he'll reveal 50 years from now before somebody dies on their deathbed. We don't know. One of the examples that's given in this passage um, as far as his omniscience is, is how he talks about how he hides things from the wise and reveals things to little children. So that, that tells us he knows these things completely. From beginning to end, every person who exists, he's categorized into these things. And that doesn't mean that he's talking about um, you know, somebody who's an adult or somebody who's a child or somebody who's smart or somebody who's dumb. Wise here is referring to those people who basically see no need for him. They've got it figured out. Um, they don't admit their need, they're self-sufficient, they're unteachable, they're proud, they're unwilling to, to basically come to him for aid. And we've all known people like this in our lives. Children refer to people who know their need. They're completely dependent. When you think about what a, a child is like, the word's actually babies, they, they need to rely on their, on their parents for everything. And so this means that God knows every person. He knows what's in the heart of man. He knows things we don't know. We see another super interesting thing brought up in this passage that involves both God's omniscience and his justice, and that's the idea of degrees of punishment. I don't know if you guys have ever looked into this one before, but how many of you guys have heard that every sin is the same in God's eyes? I used to, I've heard that a bunch. All sins are the same to God. And I used to teach that, actually. I was told that early on, and I parroted it and thought, well, this is, this is true. And then I started reading stuff like this and go, ooh, wait a second. Is that right? Now, there is a sense in which it's true. According to James chapter 2, it tells us that whoever keeps the whole law and fails in just one is guilty of all. So in that sense, it only takes one sin to make a person unholy. In the same way Thomas Watson said, it takes one hole to sink a ship, right? It doesn't, you don't need more than that. Just that's enough. It'll do the job. So, so in that sense, sins are the same. But, but when you read the scriptures and you read stuff like this, you get the sense that God feels differently about some sins than others. And we see this in the Old Testament, correct? When we, when we look at the, the judgments that were given for some laws that were broken, sometimes it was death. Sometimes it was bring a pigeon or flour. I didn't mean that to be funny, but it, it was. <laughs> you know, that, there's a difference there. You, you see it, um, you know, some sins he says that's an abomination. doesn't say that about all sins. There are a couple of sins. I know God hates all sins, but there are a couple of sins he goes on record to say, I hate those sins. Um, there, there's, if you're a teacher, you know this one, my favorite verse, we will be held to a stricter judgment. It's like, no, what does that mean? I think it means what it says it means. A teacher will be held to a stricter judgment than somebody who doesn't teach. That's terrifying. He says it would be better for that person to have a millstone tied around their neck and sink to the bottom of the ocean than it would to stumble one of these little ones. There's a difference in the way he views some of these things. And, and, and what we see in this passage is Jesus saying it's going to be more tolerable for these cities than it is for you guys. And the reason for that is because those cities, the implication is that they didn't have as much light being shown to them, whereas the, the cities he mentions here, they had Jesus, the light of the world, in their midst, and they ignored it. 
And so there's going to be a difference. People often wonder about those who have no access to the gospel and things like that. And, and, and in God's omniscience and his justice, all this stuff will get worked out. People will still be judged. Don't misunderstand. But we already talked about how we can tell from creation that there is a God. But for those who have more light, you know, we're, this principle is laid out in the Bible in Luke 12, 48. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. Right? So bottom line is this. God is just and no one will be treated unfairly. And this is what I think gets to us sometimes. We think, you know, I'm going to stand before God someday, and there's people that are going to say, you know, I didn't get what I deserved. This isn't fair. Right? That's what we imagine, right? I don't think that's going to happen. I think when we stand before God, we'll have no, uh, you know, no illusions about what's fair at that point. In fact, I think what I'll say is, this isn't fair, God. Thank you. Thank you that it's not fair. Thank you that what I deserved went on your son instead. That's the unfair thing that's going to happen. That's the only thing we'll be you know, thinking about at that point for Christians. He took on what I deserved willingly and suffered in my place so that I could be forgiven and have eternal life. That's not fair. So this is all pretty heavy stuff, and you're probably going, please give us some relief at this point. And it's no coincidence that this passage ends with, uh, with verse 28. It's one of the greatest things recorded in Scripture where Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Uh, it's funny that we, we often, we know this verse, but we don't know it in the context uh, of what, where it's at in the Bible sometimes. He just talked about some really heavy stuff that's hard to understand. And, and then he says, I bet you're a little bit worn out by that. Come to me. <laughs> and I'll give you rest, right? And I love that his invitation says, come to me all. Does it not say all? So that, that means that if you want to come to Jesus, you can. We can have endless debates as to where the desire comes from, okay? I think I know where it comes from. I don't think it comes from in me. I think it's something he places within me. But, but the, the point remains, he says all. So if you have a desire, come. We see similar language in John's gospel. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out or turn away. You also see this Jesus at the, at the feast on the last day. He stands up and he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and, and I'll give him, you know, water of life. So if you're thirsty, if you want to come, you can come. He won't turn you away. Now, he describes the people that come as, as tired from their labor and, and burdened down. And this would have had a, a lot of meaning to the Jewish people that he was talking to. Because can you imagine what it would have been like to try to keep track of all of the laws? You're trying to find a way to please God. And you're thinking, okay, if I do this and I don't do that and I keep that and I don't do that. I mean, there's a lot of stuff to keep track of. It would have been exhausting. Um, and then not only did they have the, the law that God gave them, but the Pharisees were super helpful in in giving them even more to do. So I think there were 613 Old Testament laws. Just for the Sabbath alone, the Pharisees added an additional 600, just that one commandment. So it's like you can just picture these guys buckling from the weight of the law, knowing they can't keep it, they can't please God through it, and then the Pharisees coming along, hey, here, let me stack this on your back, you know, and have a good day. I mean, thank you. May I have another, sir? It's like, why would you do that? But this is what we see. And that's why Jesus saying, come to me and I will give you rest is such a beautiful invitation. 
Because what he's ultimately saying, when you think about like rest from what? Relief from what? Well, trying to earn God's favor through what you do. I don't know if you've ever tried to do that or keep his favor by what you do, but it's not fun. And what Jesus is saying is that I will give you my righteousness. I will take your sin. I will give you my righteousness. It is finished so you can rest. That's great news. You've also got to think about John the Baptist, who was, you know, this comes right after what he was talking about there. John the Baptist is in a situation where he's in prison. He's doubting his faith. He's doubting everything. His circumstances are just, I mean, a lot of you guys have circumstances in your life, even right now, that you don't know why they're there. You don't know what to make of it. And Jesus would say the same thing to you. Come, come to me, come over here and I'll give you rest. Such a beautiful picture to think about Jesus saying, come here, just come here. Knock it off. Quit your worrying. Come here. You know, you can just put your head on his shoulder and, and rest. And then, of course, we have what this passage is all about today. The same thing where we start to get all twisted up about how does this stuff work? And if this happens, it means this. And what about, you can, you can drive yourself crazy. And I would just encourage you, put that in God's inbox, put it in his realm. He says, I am, I am good. I am gentle. I am lowly in heart. Remember that about Jesus. Think about who he is and then come and he will give you rest. He goes on to say, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Um, the yoke was a wooden instrument that joined two oxen together so that they could work in unison. Um, but it had become a, 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 just a burden or a symbol of heavy burden to the Jews, uh, like a yoke or a heavy burden for them. If you remember the Jerusalem council, when Paul and Barnabas got back from the mission trip and they went to the Jerusalem council to talk to the guys and say, hey, we got all these Gentiles that have become Christians. What do we need to make them do? And, uh, and the Jews are more than happy to say, oh, we got stuff. So, okay, they need to, you know, do this and this and this. And, oh, we got to make sure that they get circumcised. And Peter stands up and says, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither we or our fathers have been able to bear, but believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And I love that. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. We don't have, we can't add to the work of Jesus. So that yoke is, is something that when you think about Jesus's yoke, it's different than the yoke of, of slavery. One of the things that we struggle with as pastors when we preach here is anytime you come across something in the Bible that tells you how you're supposed to live, an imperative, it, it's, it, you, you never want people to come to church and walk away with 600 more rules on their back, right? It's like you guys come in after a long week, you're burdened, and so, hey, hey, let me stuff your backpack full of a bunch of bricks and be on your way. That's not great, is it? So we always want to make sure that we understand the difference in, in, the, in Jesus's yoke and the, the yoke of the law, because we really get the yoke of the law. The yoke of Jesus is different, and, and it really comes down to this, the have-tos versus the get-tos. So the have-tos would be like, I have to do this, I have to do that. If I want God to be happy with me, I have to do all these things. The good news is Jesus took care of the have-tos. He did it. It's done. Now we can focus on the, the get-tos. We don't, we don't have to. We get to. We get to live a life of worship and obedience. Um, so I like that he says, my, I, he didn't say you don't have any work to do, but he said my burden is light. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. There's still stuff where we get to walk in newness of life. There's still important things for the Christian to do, but not in regards to earning God's favor or keeping his favor. So the question I would ask you is, has Jesus revealed himself to you? Has he, has he given you that offer to come to him? Are you, you know, anyone who's thirsty, come to me and I will give you rest. You can come today 
If you're thirsty, you can come. If you've never come before, you can come today. There's nothing stopping you. If you've already come, listen to the words from the Gospel of Luke, the parallel passage of this section where Jesus says this to his disciples. He said this to them privately. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. Have you ever thought about that? (laughs) Here I go. Have you ever thought about that? Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. If he has revealed himself to you, have you ever thought about that? Knowing all of you, (laughs) the good, the bad, and the ugly, he still revealed himself to you. He still loved you. He still wanted you. Can you just meditate on that? Think on that. It blows my mind every day. I don't understand why I see the path and why I get to go, but I'm blessed because of it, and I want to live a life of faithful obedience to him out of gratitude for it. And this is where, you know, some of these songs we sing can take on whole new meaning, like this one, for instance. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind but now I see. Father, thank you so much that that you have uh, revealed these things to us. We don't understand it, but we are grateful for it. We thank you so much that you are omniscient, that you are just, that you are gracious. Lord, we may not understand all of these things, but, but we know who you are, and we know that by going to the cross and spending time and looking at what you've done for sinners there, you gave your son willingly so that we could be forgiven and have life. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.